Welcome to Citrin Cooperman's C-Suite Snacks podcast, providing the middle market with brief, concise, and tactical business improvement information in just 30 minutes. I'm Steve Ronan, the leader of our consulting and outsourcing practices and your host. Join me each week ad-free as I dive into top business issues and growth strategies with the best in the business. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and please visit us at citrincooperman.com. And now for this week's episode, we hope you enjoy. The supply chain news is registered at the top of the business pages lately. Uh, disruptions in Far East production, starting all the way back at the beginning of the pandemic, lingering microchip shortages, nearshoring becoming trendy again, and recent events like the Suez Canal blockage have all kept the changes and risks in the global supply chain at the top of business leaders' minds. On today's C-Suite Snacks, we're going to speak with Citroen Cooperman's manufacturing and distribution co-leader, John Giordano, and supply chain specialist Tom Cook, who's a managing director with Blue Tiger International, about how companies can address cost and risk issues in the current environment. Without further ado, I'd like to turn it over to my colleague, John Giordano, to begin today's presentation. John, over to you. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks, uh, Steve, for that intro. As Steve had mentioned, I'm the co-leader here of our manufacturing distribution practice at Citroen Cooperman. Um, I think Steve really hit on a lot of the key topics we're facing today in terms of um, the global supply chain. One of the things we pride ourselves here at Citroen Cooperman is, is the high level of partner interaction with the C-suite. Uh, over the years, it's been a key differentiator for us and allows us not only to provide our clients with the sounding board and access to our expertise, but it also gives us as advisors a good sense of what's going on in the marketplace. We not only have discussions regarding the accounting and tax compliance, but more often than not, the discussions center around the business itself. It's with these conversations that we're able to understand some of the issues such as the global supply chain issues. You see high level touch points throughout the year provide our clients not only our expertise, but also the expertise of our network, whether internal or external, such as Tom Cook, who joins me today from Blue Tiger International. This past year, we've had clients on both ends of the spectrum those that are providing goods and services that were essential and in high demand, and those that were impacted by the government regulations, capacity issues, social distancing requirements, et cetera, that significantly impacted businesses. But one thing that we found to be relatively consistent throughout has been, as Steve mentioned, the impact the pandemic has had on the cost throughout the global supply chain. And as a result, I asked Tom to join me today and discuss a little bit about some potential ways you might be able to mitigate these risks through strategy and planning. So to get the conversation over to Tom, please take it away. Thank you, John. And uh, thank you for your organization to allow me to have an opportunity to speak. I think for your clients um, and the businesses that you interface with, this is a very value added service. And I trust that they will appreciate the ability to open up uh, the portal to resources that you guys use uh, to help you do your job with your clients. So what we're going to talk about today in a very concise time frame, because I have about 25 minutes, is some of the options that supply chain executives and companies that have a global footprint can use in minimizing the cost and risk in their supply chain. We have over 30 years experience in helping companies all over the world, but actually focused in the New York area, which is where we're based. So one of the most important things in supply chain is what we refer to as the landed cost, and particularly for companies that are involved 
in global sourcing, this becomes a critical issue. And there are a number of elements that, that make up landed costs. But the thing that we're focused on right here now is duties, taxes, and the VAT and GST costs that are associated with uh, importing goods from overseas. Everybody is well aware that when President Trump became uh, president in 2017, he put forth a number of uh, duties and tax programs to uh, actually increase the concept of companies coming back to the US for manufacturing and basically politically penalizing certain countries around the world for various behavior. The more impactful duties and taxes were referred to as the 301 tariffs, which impacted about 40 to 45% of all the goods that we purchased from China. This added a 25% surcharge on the goods that we imported from there. We spent more time in the last four years trying to find alternative sources for companies because they weren't able to bear or accept in their margin that 25% increase. A lot of people felt when Biden became president that he was going to eliminate these tariffs, but in fact, a reversal has actually occurred. It's been announced now that the Biden administration is not going to look at the 301 tariffs until sometime in the later part of 2022. So those 301 tariffs that we've seen in place and also the ones that are 232 on steel and aluminum are likely to stay in place at least until the end of 2022. One of the things that we do in helping companies is we kind of collaborate internally and put this out to you is that any of the things that we're going to talk about today require a collaborative effort between purchasing, supply chain, transportation, logistics, engineering, R&D, customer service, sales management, finance, legal vendors, suppliers, and requires the support of senior management. I'm going to focus on free trade agreements, drawback, bonded warehouses, foreign trade zones, alternative sourcing, or referred to as tariff engineering and demand planning. So free trade agreements are agreements that we have with uh, various countries all around the world. One of the largest ones is what referred to previously as NAFTA, now as USMCA with Canada and Mexico. And basically the United States enters into an agreement so that there's either a minimization or a complete reduction or elimination of the duties on goods that travel between those countries. So the point being is, is that if we are importing something from China and not only paying the typical four and a half percent duty, but also the 25% surcharge, it might make sense to look for an alternative country. If you move into a country where we have a free trade agreement, then you're actually eliminating the duty altogether, which obviously impacts the landed cost. One of the uh, countries that we do a comparison with, and one of the important things is to create financial models relative to free trade agreements is to take a look at a model of an example of going to Mexico for manufacturing as compared to China. In this case, we've created an Excel spreadsheet and basically it's a very simplified model. And what we're doing is we're comparing the cost of acquiring the product in China as compared to Mexico. And when you look to the right side, you can see that in every particular case, there's significant savings. At the end of the day, transactionally, the savings amount to $19,360 in the comparison. And if this company was to import twice weekly, that would mean annualized savings of over $2 million a year, which is pretty significant for most companies. So free trade agreements are a definite option for you to look at to help you um, move through these programs. There's also a program in Mexico, which coincides with the USMCA called the Maquila Dora program. 
This works where a Mexican manufacturer or assembly uh, facility takes in components, raw materials from overseas. If the intent is to manufacture, assemble, and then ship to the United States, when they import it into Mexico, it comes in there duty-free. And when it comes into the United States, it's duty-free. Almost half of the Fortune 1000 companies uh, are participating either directly or indirectly in the Maquiladora program because it is so advantageous. Another program, <coughs> excuse me, that we look at is called Drawback. Drawback is a program in which as a company, if you import something or you buy something from a distributor or a manufacturer in which they have imported the products or materials into the country, and then that product gets exported and not necessarily means that you're the exporter, it can be exported by a third party. But if you can evidence that the goods uh, were imported and the goods were exported, you can claim up to 99% of your duties and taxes back from US customs. Um, and one of the beauties of the program is you can actually go back as much as five years. So not only is it a program that you can create today going forward, but it's also one that if you had activity in the past five years, you can take advantage of this program as well. So again, we create a financial model through an Excel spreadsheet. In this particular case, a company imports five and a half million dollars. The duty rate is four and a half percent. The duty cost annually is 247,000. If this company exports, and again, directly or indirectly, 40% of what it imports, okay, there is no duty charged on, on, for that because it's gonna be reimbursed to you up to 99% leaving you a savings of $98,000 approximately. There's a cost of administering a drawback program. It's about 10% on a contingent basis of the monies collected. Um, and that's a typical number. So you can see in this case, just on $5 million, there's a savings of $100,000 annually. Another program that we're very involved with is turning uh, warehouses, either your own facilities or third-party facilities, into bonded facilities. And the basic concept of a bonded facility is that it sits outside the US economy. Even though it might be physically located within the United States, goods that enter it have not yet entered the US economy. So they pass through the border where customs clearance does not have to incur. Customs clearance will only incur once the goods move out of the bonded warehouse. So depending upon your inventory turn, this could have a huge cash flow advantage. A lot of US companies are North American distributors, so they have goods going up to Canada, Mexico, the Caribbean, Latin America. This is a perfect example of where bonded might, might work. And again, it doesn't have to be your own facility. It also could be a third party facility as well. So again, we move it into an Excel spreadsheet so that we can see the financial advantages of this. Um, we have a process that's in place in assessing any of these programs that we've talked about so far and other ones we will talk about, which has four steps. It's an assessment process, and then it's creating a financial model that looks like this, then an operational model, and then actual implementation. So in this case, we have a company that imports $5.5 million annually at a 4.5% duty rate. Obviously, if it's from China, we now know that you might have a 25% surcharge, which makes the deal even much more sweeter. So we have $247,000 for duties. This particular company exports 40% of what it imports, okay? So in that the goods will have never entered the United States because they're only passing through that warehouse 
the value there is $99,000. Company imports goods into the bonded facility. Its duties are only due when the goods come out of that facility into a domestic customer. So six months after entry into the bonded facility, $50,000 of the goods are sold to a company in Columbus, Ohio. It's only at that point in time that the duty is ab uh, obligated to be paid. So you have the deferral to that point in time. And then seven months after the entry into the bonded warehouse, $100,000 of the goods are exported to Toronto, Canada. The goods have never entered the US economy, therefore no duties are paid. So we have a zero benefit in that regard. So the big advantage here is cash flow. And if in fact things get exported, um, you get the benefit that the, the, there will never be an obligation to pay duty of taxes. And always appreciate the fact that you don't have to necessarily be the importer. You don't necessarily have to be the exporter. You just have to be able to evidence that the goods were imported and exported. Foreign trade zones. Foreign trade zones are bonded warehouses on steroids. Foreign trade zones is a big area that we're very involved with uh, for all our clients across the country. Um, because in the foreign trade zones, it gives us the ability to actually do manufacturing and assembly. In a bonded warehouse, you're not allowed to materially change the merchandise, but in a foreign trade zone, you're, you are allowed to materially change it. I always use as an example, BMW, which is one of the foreign trade zones 20 years ago, we put together in Greer, South Carolina. Appreciate the fact that they bring uh, uh, engines and seats and tires and transmissions in from all over the world. They actually assemble the automobile in the United States and customs in a foreign trade zone gives you the ability to declare to customs when a good goods get entered in either as a finished product as an automobile or as the parts or materials wherever the duty rate is lowest. And generally in manufacturing finished product will have a lower duty rate than actual pro uh, materials, parts, and components. So foreign trade zones can provide a huge advantage, which is why many, many foreign manufacturers now operate foreign trade zones here in the United States. Almost all the foreign car manufacturers now have assembly plants all over the United States. It also creates an opportunity for reduced clearance charges because we're able to do weekly manifest clearances. It reduces our merchandise processing fees. Uh, it reduces our harbor maintenance fees uh, on different opportunities that we have um, to use in foreign trade zones. Again, we move this to a uh, Excel spreadsheet to look at a financial model. It's obviously critical to make sure that we justify the return on investment. So in this particular case, we have a company that imports $80 million of finished products from China. The duty on those finished goods is 5.8%. The annual duty cost is a little more than $5.5 million. The company sets up an assembly facility in Mount Olive, New Jersey. That's where there's an existing foreign trade zone. Company now imports components, parts, and raw materials from various countries. The duty rates on the raw materials and components vary from free to much as 3%. Goods move into the foreign trade zone and do not enter into the U.S. economy. Therefore, no duties are paid. So just like a bonded warehouse, foreign trade zone sits outside the U.S. economy. So there are no duties or taxes to be paid until the goods come out of that zone. The manufacturing process includes assembly, testing, quality control, warehousing, averaging 90 days. U.S. labor is used to do the assembly work, which adds about 0.1% additional cost into the process. 
it is determined by hard data that the finished products uh, cost is about 50% labor and 50% materials in this model. The goods now enter the United States as the point of sale. Duties are only applied to $40 million of the value in parts and components and not the 80 million as previously done. The annual duty cost is now $2.3 million. Because we're using US labor in this model, we have to add another $400,000 into the cost, okay? Which brings our total cost up to 2.7 million. The difference is $1.9 million on just $80 million of imports. If this company was involved with a much larger transactions of say a billion dollars, okay, the a savings would be in excess of $24 million. So foreign trade zones and bonded warehouses are two great options. We work on these all the time. Another big area that we look at is alternative sourcing management. This uh, has always been part of our business model for over 30 years, but it actually has grown on steroids in the last five years, mainly because of all the increased tariff and duties on goods coming out of China. Um, so basically uh, we have foot, uh, footprints and people on the ground in about 13 to 14 different countries around the world um, outside of China. So countries like Vietnam, Taiwan, Malaysia, Philippines, Indonesia, India, Turkey, Mexico, um, Brazil, are countries that we're moving a significant amount of manufacturing to as alternative sourcing. And additionally, we moved a fair amount of manufacturing actually back here to the United States. While typically in the United States, the acquisition cost would be more as a general statement, when you look at the landed cost and the reduction in that there'll be no duties or taxes and the cost of transportation and the lead time and factors like that are much more minimized, uh, that also provides benefit and makes the United States more attractive uh, for uh, manufacturing as well. Another area that we look at is tariff engineering. And tariff engineering, in the most simplest way to explain, is a legitimized, legitimized process that we're allowed to use in navigating US customs rules so that we can change the harmonized tariff number on goods coming in, thereby achieving okay, a lower duty rate. An example that I would use is we have an apparel client up in Seattle just recently. Um, they're in the sports uh, arena marketplace. They have about 15, 16 different lines of clothing. Um, and um, when they bring those things in, the duty rate ranges from about two and a half percent to as much as 11%, depending upon where it originates from and the uh, material that's used. But as soon as we uh, put a capability uh, that provides a benefit uh, for the goods uh, being able to avoid any problems if it becomes wet, meaning that we're moisture proofing the product, okay, that brings the duty rate to a much lower amount and in some cases eliminates the duty altogether. So by using a process of Gore-Tex where we add it into each of the fabrics for a few cents, it saves us several dollars per each unit on the import side. This company that we worked with up in Seattle had about $30 million worth of imports. We were able to impact their costing model by as much as a million dollars by just basically creating a Gore-Tex capability uh, in their products uh, in the manufacturing process overseas. 
this uh, cases have already gone up as far as the Supreme Court. They've been tested and the Supreme Court said, so long as no deception is practiced, so long as the goods are truly invoiced and freely and honestly exposed to the offices of customs for their examination, no fraud is committed, no penalty is incurred. The point being that it allows legitimately done tariff engineers. I keep two engineers on our staff to help companies uh, look at this uh, as an option. Uh, the last uh, area, again, watching my time here, um, is the demand planning area. Um, when we go in to do an assessment at a company, one of the things we look at is the company's overall freight spend. Um, and to appreciate this, you look at the two pictures on the screen there, you've got a, an air freight shipment and you've got an ocean freight shipment. When you analyze the cost of goods being shipped at a per kilo or per cubic meter basis, Ocean freight is 18 to 20 times less expensive than air freight. So when we go and do an assessment, we ask for a payables run on the freight spend. And if we see that in the freight spend that there is more than 5% of that spend allocated to air freight, that creates a red flag to us. Because we understand that in a lot of product lines and a lot of circumstances, there's a legitimacy to air freight. But in 99% of the cases, it shouldn't be a major part of a company's spend. And when we start to dissect, well, why is it that 20% of a company's spend is air freight or 50% of their ex uh, expenses air freight? Generally, it falls back to the demand planning process and that there's some fault in the demand planning process. In a very simplified way, demand planning can be summed up to two things. Uh, the, uh, the inclusion of historical data related to a client's buying habits Okay, and what their needs are. And then the anticipatory needs based upon a communication with your clients as to what they think they're gonna need down the road. And we find that the second area is generally the one that where there is failure, that there isn't tight enough communications between companies sales and their customer service departments with their customers or tight enough communications to get accurate data so they can feed that back into their demand planning chain. So. Sometimes there are technologies that can be integrated and sometimes it's just business process that needs to be changed, but we try to impact demand planning to reduce that cost. We just worked on a company actually based here on Long Island um, that had about a $40 million spend, which was 50% air freight and 50% um, ocean freight. And we were able to basically eliminate 80% of the air freight spend, close to $25 million worth of spend just by changing some factors in the demand planning process. So this becomes a very critical area to review. So one of the things that I also have in this thing and everybody has access to these slides is we've created a number of websites for you that you can go to that contains a lot of the information that I've spoken to about this. I realize that I've sped through a lot of the subject matter and obviously I'm gonna be available for questions at the end here. And then I've created a bunch of useful links for you to get a lot of the information that supports a lot of the subject matters that I've spoken about today. Um, so um, always appreciate that classifications is a big issue and so forth like that. So I've created this, uh, this slide, which is CROSS, C-R-O-S-S, which is a great uh, systems. If you go into the customs website, you can get there and you can pick a product, a harmonized tariff number, a particular company name or a generic name of a product, put it in there and it'll tell you all the rulings that have come forth uh, over the years. It goes back almost as much as 20 years plus 
in activity. So it becomes another great resource for you. So appreciate the fact of those four steps, the assessment stage, it really is first, okay? Followed by operations and a financial model, okay? And then lastly, by implementation, those four steps we've been doing for well over 25 years, they've really pro proven to be a successful model in order to reduce risk and cost in the supply chain. Appreciate the fact that I've only touched on about five or six of the options. At the end of the day, there are really 14 of them that we work with when we work with companies in the supply chain. So I appreciate again, um, John Giordano and his staff uh, putting this thing together and his organization. And I'll open it up for any uh, questions that any of the attendees might have. Tom, thanks a lot. Uh, great compact 25 minutes of uh, dense supply chain content there. That's so much to think about. You know, I think one of the questions that we've been getting a lot, and I'm sure you have too, is, is how, how do you kind of quantify the global risk of being too concentrated in some of these, you know, more traditional uh, countries? And uh, how does that play into the decision on whether to nearshore? You know, you talked about uh, Mexico and South America and even the Southwest to some different options. How, how should companies kind of factor risk into their decision to uh, uh, nearshore production? So the, the, from probably the early 1980s when I got involved with this business all the way through to the late 90s, we used to have this theory about not putting all your eggs in, in one basket and diversifying your portfolio uh, as a strategic process. And um, to some extent that, that has some validity. But in fact, today, particularly with the increased costs in acquisition of merchandise, the increased costs in transportation and so forth like that, um, a strategy is now to put all your eggs in one basket. Um, and in that concept, the key is to really watch that basket very carefully. But having said that, in the diversification of sourcing, a lot of companies are realizing that their dependency on China has a lot of fault involved and therefore that they really need to diversify their portfolio. So a lot of companies, we say, you don't have to eliminate China as your source, but you, you need to reduce your dependence on it and take a certain percentage of your manufacturing to other countries. And in fact, Vietnam, Taiwan, Malaysia, and Mexico is four key countries that we move a lot of companies to. They can produce the product just as well as can, uh, China can and do it as cost effectively. And in some cases, because the tariffs change dramatically from those countries can really provide savings as well. So uh, at the end of the day, um, you have to evaluate based on your supply chain, the amount of your risk tolerance, okay, that you're willing to take and then apply those factors to making the decisions of alternative sourcing, near sourcing and diversifying that portfolio. Great. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, Tom, thanks so much for joining us today. Great topic, great presentation. Really appreciate the time. Uh, John, same to you. Thanks for putting this together. Uh, very timely, relevant topic for, for our audience today.